You're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where faith's deepest values meet the world's hardest problems. This season, we will be exploring the lives of great moral leaders, men and women who change the world. Our discussions will be guided by David and Colin's new book, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, available everywhere October 16th, 2018. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics. Hi, I'm Jeremy. You can call me David. And I'm Colin. And uh, today, as we continue our journey through this list of great moral leaders, we are going to look at Gandhi, which is really exciting. Everyone loves Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in the world. Everyone wants Gandhi in their camp. Lots of our other leaders were inspired by Gandhi. Bonhoeffer, MLK, Mandela, they're all going to to pull little bits from him. Gandhi suffers from over-familiarity and under-familiarity. Everybody knows something about Gandhi, something you can say in an elevator and you go up to the second floor. Gandhi led the nonviolent resistance movement against the British in India. Ding! But there's a lot more to Gandhi, some, some good, some not so good, that is worth exploring. He's a very complicated man. For the Western Christian reader, Gandhi has to be understood in his Indian context and in his Hindu context, and in the context of that particular moment of both of British imperialism and colonialism. And so there's a lot to, to get at to make sense of him and his historical context and his motivation. Fun fact, uh, Gandhi did not say, be the change you want to see in the world. Oh, stop, Colin, stop. Why is he even in the book? I know, I'm ruining things. That is, I think that one has stuck around because it is a paraphrase of a longer reflection, and it does actually capture what he was about. Um, He did blend personal transformation and social change in a really compelling way, and we can talk about that. But again, to the point of over-familiarity, Gandhi has become one of these figures that we can assign any quote to, and it has a level of moral authority, moral gravitas. His other famous one, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Not Gandhi at all. Who said it? It was. It traces back, I think, to a trade unionist in the early. Uh, <laughs> I think it was a speech in like Cincinnati of all of all places, and somehow has become uh, linked with Gandhi. And so, whereas some of the leaders that we talk about in this book, their legacies are they just sort of get tossed out and then have to be rediscovered. In other cases, they become domesticated. In Gandhi's case, it just kept inflating and inflating and inflating to the point where it's like got its own gravity and it starts sucking in other good quotes and good ideas, even if they aren't necessarily his. Most of us are familiar with Gandhi's work in resisting British imperialism. What part of the story do I not know? Did you know, dear listeners, that Gandhi was an unimpressive, somewhat identity-confused Indian emigre? Uh, he went to England to study law, and there are pictures of him there where he looks like the characters in the Baybar books. You know, he he was trying to fit in in the British imperial model. He was being assimilated to some extent. Went back to India, failed as a lawyer, had an opportunity to kind of start fresh in South Africa, so he went to South Africa. 
in South Africa, partly because of a pivotal experience of being abused on a train, he became inflamed by the experience of Indians in South Africa, where they were the subject of racist legislation that was uh, not quite as terrible as what eventually happened to uh, black Africans, but they were definitely discriminated against. So he found his voice as a South African Indian liberation activist. Most people don't know that. So it was in South Africa where he began to slough off Western ways, uh, Western ways of thinking and living. Uh, he returned to Hinduism as he understood it and became both kind of an Indian liberationist and a nonviolent civil disobedience theorist and practitioner. Also there, it became clear to him that he needed and his people needed a spiritual base for, um, for resistance. And what developed was a Hindu-tinged, uh, nonviolent civil disobedience strategy that was partly about how you relate to the oppressor, and it's also about how you still your own spirit, uh, how you discipline your own self so that you can endure and, and participate in a long-running civil disobedience campaign that will cost you a great deal of suffering. And then he went back from there to India after many years in South Africa and did the same thing, just on a much bigger scale. Yeah, he was declared a Mahatma or great soul before coming back to India. And so he was really able to achieve what he did in India in large part because he already had that moral authority. So when he went on a hunger strike, for example, people took notice. People didn't want something bad to happen to him. And that is one of the interesting tensions in his life. On one hand, it's a somewhat coercive to go on a hunger strike to essentially threaten your own life. On the other hand, it's very selfless in a way. You are putting your life at risk in order to achieve some greater goal. But underlying both of those, you need to have a moral authority to the point where people care that you're at risk. And this is one of the things that's been lost is a lot of his tactics, is a lot of the ideas and methods of social change that he innovated have been popularized, have taken off, have been used and maybe overused, is that there are relatively few figures who have the stature that if they go on a, on a hunger strike like that, people will drop everything and rush to their side and say, how, how can we prevent this? What can we do? There's only maybe four or five in the world today that we could even think of. When it, when it happens and we see it in the news and it's a, a C-list celebrity, clearly we don't wish ill things upon them, but it doesn't interrupt our daily lives in quite the same way. If Pope Francis, Michelle Obama, and Laura Bush were to go on a hunger strike outside the White House related to like the border policy or something, the then world would notice. the world would notice. Gandhi was all of that. Uh, in India. How did Gandhi get to this status? How do you become a nonviolent Indian superhero? <laughs> I think partly by trial and error. This is probably a good chance to talk a little bit about the theory of nonviolent civil disobedience. The idea is that there is a moral order to the universe, and that moral order is just. Law is supposed to reflect justice and to advance it. When human law perverts justice and oppresses, it loses its legitimacy. 
However, those who are using law in that way have the guns and the prisons and the tanks and so on. And so if you attack such a system using violence, you will be crushed. The insight of nonviolent civil disobedience is injustice must be resisted and it must be resisted actively, but it must be resisted nonviolently so that you throw a movement of people, you throw all of their bodies against the system, assuming that process will be costly, that the state or whoever the oppressors are, it's almost always the state is involved, will lash out, will attack, will beat and may kill. But if you keep your discipline on the, on the resistance side, you consistently are able to point out what's wrong with the laws. The injustice of the oppressor is revealed by the way in which they then lash out at you for just speaking nonviolently against what they're doing. Public opinion begins to shift and the suffering of the resistors is part of the price to be paid to bring social change. So it requires a spirituality and it requires an ethic of nonviolence firm commitment to nonviolence no matter what happens to you and a spirituality that can prepare you to endure suffering believing that it is in line with god slash the universe slash morality and that it is the best way or at least the only acceptable moral way to attempt to attack social injustice and unjust laws this is what was so motivating and instructive for the civil rights movement and dr king it also was intriguing to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was looking for an opportunity to go from Germany, Nazi Germany, to India to meet Gandhi. One of the really interesting things about Gandhi is I come to it looking through the lens of social change, social activism, something I've been doing for most of my adult life. And there, there tends to be this, this constant running debate between changing policies or changing hearts and minds. And Gandhi is trying to do both at once. For Gandhi, personal transformation is necessary in order to do any sort of social activism, and that social activism then produces changed hearts and minds. So you don't end up with a dynamic where, say, in modern life, we have a debate over, uh, should we ban sugary drinks in large quantities, or should we just educate people about the dangers of sugar for their health, um, and that you know, that'll produce change or no, we need, we need sort of a, a more paternalistic, uh, and I'm not even using that negatively, an attitude of, okay, well, no, we just need to change these policies and it will produce better outcomes. Gandhi is erasing that distinction in a much more tense and fraught situation where we're talking about the, the liberty of, of people. And he's also doing it again to the question of how you become so admired one of the things we miss when we talk about Gandhi as a social change leader is that he did not want to coerce people into changing their policies. He wanted to convert them. And that's a big difference. It's one thing to engage in all these protests and do it nonviolently and shame somebody into the point where they feel like they have to back down because they're going to lose all their popularity. The guy who, who Gandhi resisted who was in charge of essentially violently, violently jailing and repressing Indian revolt in South Africa, eventually became one of Gandhi's biggest fans. That doesn't happen usually. Usually you back down and the person still doesn't like you, but you won and you feel good. In this case, he went around saying, no, Gandhi, this guy's legit. So how does he get to be that, that moral authority? I think it starts there. I think it, it starts from this attitude of I'm going to, try and convert people and win them over, 
but I'm not going to do that by sitting and patiently waiting for them to change. I'm going to resist, but I'm going to do so in a way that the end goal is not surrender, but a new ally. So Gandhi is able to do these things coming from a place of Hindu spirituality. What does the, the model, the life, the spirituality of Gandhi have to say to the church and Christian leaders? Gandhi was one of the first Global South critics of Western Christianity to get the attention of Western Christianity. He uh, understood that Western Christianity had been damaged by Western power by the marriage of cross and crown, and by uh, Western colonialism, which was poisoned from the beginning. And Gandhi made very clear how much he respected Jesus and how seriously he took the Sermon on the Mount. I believe he said, I hope this is not a fake <laughs> quote, uh, I believe he said, I would very much admire a Christian if I could meet one. Ooh, ow. If he didn't say that, he should have. Uh, there's some what is there a line in a book that says something like that? He did say most of what passes for Christianity today is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. And he did read when he was in England, he went and read through the whole Bible and he, he found most of it boring. Um, so anyone who is, who is slogged through Chronicles uh, or numbers, you're in good company, but he found the Sermon on the Mount incredibly compelling and he just didn't think that Christians were following those teachings. And they probably weren't following those teachings. This is another part of his critique because they misunderstood Jesus. Sometimes it takes an outsider to offer insight and new perspective into your own life and your own beliefs. None of this is to say that Gandhi's best ideas are rooted in Christianity. It's just that I think some of Christianity's best ideas are reflected in Gandhi, and we neglect them to our own peril. Can I add something about Hinduism? Part of the detachment tradition of, of Eastern thought is being able to react with equanimity no matter what happens to you or around you. You are not dominated by your circumstances. Your spirit has a kind of detachment so that you are able to enter whatever circumstance and you don't change. Think of how that's relevant. If somebody's beating you about the head because you're attempting to get the British out of India, the natural reaction is to want to hit them back or to defend yourself. It's a spiritual discipline to learn how to be the same person and act in the same way that you intended to act, no matter what anybody else does to you. Might require you to turn the other cheek. Right. See how he saw he saw the uh, overlap with the Sermon on the Mount, but there was there were Hindu resources for this as well, including in the emphasis on detachment. Okay, so David just gave the positive spin on detachment, on self-restraint, on uh, testing one's limits, and I want to spin around to use that as an entree into some of the ugly parts of what that means. A lot of that revolves around Gandhi's relationship with women. These two things do go together because part of what, part of the danger of an asceticism is it, be, it can become sort of world-denying. Um, and body denying, it can embrace suffering as an end in itself, not just as a means to an end. And so there's a danger in that sharply dualistic thinking. It can also become, um, it, can, it can end up producing actions that view people as ends, as a way of testing your own self-restraint. And, and I think that's what happened in Gandhi's case. So the, the classic case that people talk about is he did age, I think 37, he declared his marriage celibate. His wife was not consulted. He simply told her 
that that would be the case from that point on. And she really became as much a, a supporter and a follower of his teachings as a wife. He loved her deeply, but the relationship wasn't, wasn't in the same way. And this is one of the things not a lot of people know about Gandhi. And it's one of the reasons why, and this will shock some folks, we almost didn't include Gandhi in this volume, a volume on moral leaders over this time span that doesn't have Gandhi. That's shocking. Well, the reason is this. He tested his self-restraint, his sexual self-restraint, by having young women sleep naked in bed with him to evaluate whether he could resist the, the allure. This was both coercive in its nature and appeared, quite frankly, to have traumatized the children. There are accounts of these young women, I, I hesitate to use the term women, weeping and crying and, uh, and appearing deeply emotional. There were people who at the time warned him about this. A secretary, his secretary quit after insisting that Gandhi cease doing this. So Gandhi is both a, a model in some ways and a cautionary tale in other ways. This part of his legacy has not really come out until recent years. And as we were writing this, we were hearing more and more stories in America in uh, 2017 and the rise of the Me Too movement of powerful men who got away with sexually predatory behavior for years and years and years because of their power, because of their influence, because of their prestige. So one of the reasons we ended up leaving Gandhi in the book is because he's an outsized figure and it's easy to see how a lot of this stuff could get swept under the rug. He cautions us in a number of ways as much as he inspires. So really problematic. And we hope that people will, will take that very seriously and reflect on that. But still, in the end, we concluded that Gandhi's contribution to nonviolent civil disobedience was so important for others in the civil rights movement and others felt like he needed to remain in the book. So Gandhi is an uh, influential and troubling figure. There are multiple layers to this enormous personality. As we wrap up, David's going to read the leadership nuggets from the Great Moral Leaders book that they've pulled as lessons on Gandhi. Six leadership lessons on Gandhi. First, character counts. It's the combination of who you are and what you do. Second, words matter. Gandhi, part of his power was his amazing facility with words. Third, change is holistic. The combination of personal and social change is in view here. Fourth, fierce critics come from within. We didn't mention earlier that Gandhi was assassinated by an ultra-nationalist Hindu Indian, and most of his, or many of his fiercest critics were fellow Indians. Fifth, convert instead of coercing. Colin talked about that earlier. And then sixth, finally, power can be toxic. It appears that power, in Gandhi's case, uh, led him to have opportunity to and to act on mistreating women. Colin, we've had a brief, fast discussion of this enormous person and life and legacy in the great soul Gandhi. What do you think we've missed? We haven't really touched on Gandhi's complicated relationship with uh, the Dalits, with uh, the so-called untouchables caste within Indian society. In many ways, he was ahead of where many of his peers were in trying to integrate Dalits into society and to break down the caste system. 
In other cases, he was clearly not as far along as we would like to think he was. And in specific examples, he, he sort of ran counter to what the leading Dalit politicians and leaders were asking for. And so he was not really listening to the people on whose behalf he was attempting to serve. Excellent. Thank you, David. Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Jeremy. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. If you would like more information about the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University, please visit us online at ctpl.mercer.edu. If you'd like to know more about the work and ministries of the voices you heard today, you can find us at our respective websites, revjeremyhall.com, davidpgushy.com, and colindholtz.com. If you'd like more information on great moral leaders, pre-order David and Colin's book, available October 16th of 2018, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, 14 People Who Dared to Change the World. Thank you. We'll see you next time.